Right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to my podcast, The Stephen Sully Study. Um, over the years, I've been running my podcast for over four years now, and it's it's really diverse, um, the, the, the individuals that I, I get on today in comparison to how my podcast started. Um, the study used to mean studying only like entrepreneurs or like, let's say, people who are uber uber successful but now it's just studying people together people that have gone through trauma gone through challenges gone through ups and downs in their lives and i've got to say the next hero that i've got in front of me right now is a lady called brandil benson used to be a former military personnel and she's a uh award-winning author you got a book called the uh, the enemy inside and also you're a uh, an advocate to, to 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 cancer so yes. anyway, long introduction there. Welcome, welcome on board and thank you for your time. First, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to talk to you and um, share my story with your listeners and be on your platform. It's such an honor. So thank you so much. All right, I appreciate it. So <clears throat> I, I want to, obviously I spoke to you the other day over the telephone just to get a bit of a flavor about, you know, the conversation we're about to have today. And without kind of rounding it all off in one go, um, because there's so many elements to your life which are inspiring, interesting, challenging. There's, there, mm-hmm. there's lessons for people to, to learn from. Um, yeah. You were in a war zone in Iraq. You then end up getting cancer. You overcame the yes. cancer, but many of your peers who had very similar sort of cancer because of what you thought because you your environment in iraq you believe that that's how you caught the cancer and all of the mm-hmm. other personnel the individuals died and you were the only survivor member and it appears it's down to the mindset positive thinking mm-hmm. and the real law of attraction so that in itself yes is yes. is 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 what we're about to talk about so let's start from the beginning i mean um I've read a little bit about your background and I, I'm I'm led to believe because of maybe social injustice and because of slight poverty, money issues, you and your sister decided that this was the reason why you would go into the military. Yes, yeah? correct. Okay, so you're American. Obviously, I'm in the UK in Soho. I believe you're in Miami at the moment. Is that always where you've been yes. from? Or what, what? what is your background, uh, Brand? Uh, no, I'm originally from California. Um, I lived all over the place because of the military. And before I lived in Florida, I lived in Georgia for about almost 12 years. And that's where I got out of the military, but kind of bounced around all over the place growing up. But we weren't military. We just moved every three years, either to a different county or a different city, but we just moved constantly. And it was, you know, I enjoyed it. You always get to start off fresh and, you know, new room, unboxing stuff and putting things together and stuff. So that's always been fun, but um, originally from California. So when you talk about, um, or what what I've read, I don't know if these are your own words, but poverty and also social injustice, what, what, can you describe a little bit more behind those two things? Yeah, so growing up, so I in I was in California, uh, about 16 years old. Um, my biological biological father ended up passing away under like mysterious circumstances. Nobody knows how he died. He was 36 years old. Just one day he was alive. The next day, you know, he was gone. So nobody knows what happened to him. So he ends up passing away. And at that time, I lived in California, and my family decided they wanted to move from California to Hawaii. So we moved there. Um, and probably like a year into living in our like tropical dream, I guess you can call it. My stepfather decides that he no longer wants to be married to my mother anymore after 14 years of marriage and, you know, X amount of time they've been together. Um, and so, as you all know, Hawaii is extremely expensive, very expensive place. So we moved there thinking we're going to have, a, you know, uh, two um, incomes for this household and it dwindles down to one. So now we don't have food. We don't have the basic necessities to to live. So we don't, bills are getting turned off. Cars are getting repossessed. Um, Life becomes extremely, extremely hard. And I remember just telling a friend of mine in high school at the time, her name was Christina, about what was going on and what was happening and how life was getting really hard. And, you know, we had three dogs. We didn't have any food for them. Everybody was starving. And she um, ends up telling her father who was in the military and they end up coming to the house just unannounced one day with 
you, I think you guys call them parcels of food. So they're, they're, um, they're MREs, like boxes of food, like kind of like camp food. So they come with all these MREs and we live off of that for like the next eight to nine months. And it's at that time, I kind of realized that there's these amazing organizations such as the military that will not allow a family like mine, like perish away basically, right? So my sister and I kind of made a little pact and we say, you know, when we get older one day, we're going to join the military. We're going to give back because this organization, this company, the army, like they saved us. I would love to give back. So that's how I kind of got introduced to it through my time of, it was only two years, but it was extremely hard, you know, watching my mother cry all the time and not knowing how we're going to pay our bills and the dogs don't have anything to eat. So our poverty was a short amount of time, but it left a huge, huge stain, you know, in my mind. And, and that's how I kind of got to introduce to the military. And it's just, it's amazing that there's organizations such as the military that would be there for you to have, you know, medical, dental, there's food, there's, you know, its own world. And all you have to do is join. So I join on the premises of having stability and knowing that if anything were to ever happen, if I ever got married, that if this individual no longer wanted to be with me, that I would not suffer, that I would still have a sturdy foundation um, to fall back on. And that's the whole reason why I ended up joining. My sister joined because kind of the same circumstances, she ended up having a baby. His name is Donovan, you know, a young boy at the time. And she needed, she needed something alive for him. So she also ended up joining the military. So we just needed stability. And the military was, was that for us. It was an ally um, kind of in a sense. Um I'm 36 years of age and I've got to be honest, like um, it's, it's, it's only in the last recent years that you are seeing more and more. And I'm only, I can only speak from the UK point of view or, or my, my social circle, what I know, what I'm exposed to, mm-hmm. but females joining mm-hmm. the, the military or joining the forces. I know a few female firefighters now, uh, but you know, let's say a generation above me, it was almost like, that doesn't happen and mm-hmm. it was almost if i'm being totally real with you frowned upon you know it, it wasn't it wasn't a culture yeah. and i wanted to ask right. you as a female who lives in america in the military what was the culture like as you went into the military for the first time with your sister oh gosh it was <clears throat> it was i'm not gonna say it was a frown upon because it's not like it's frowned upon but it was just like and you're not equal. So there's not equality in it really, you know? So going there, there's a lot of sexual harassment, so much sexual harassment, so much. They just think you're less, less of them because you're not physical, physically as strong as a man. So there's those types of things. And then if you feel tired or you don't feel well, they feel like you're trying to kind of cop out of whatever your task or your, your, whatever it is that you're supposed to be doing. So there was a lot of that, but being deployed in Iraq, I experienced a lot of, of course, like social injustice, racism, um, sexual harassment. Like, I think the hardest thing is, is you're going to a war zone to to provide safety, right? But I don't even feel safe. Like I'm constantly checking over my back and seeing if, you know, someone's trying to grab me or touch me. And then God forbid that you tell them no. And then if there's some sort of hypothetical situation, a firefight, right? And something happens and maybe I get shot or something like, will this person help me in the future? Because I kind of, you know, shot his sexual advantages down. So it was just a lot of lot of things going back and forth, a lot of things to be thinking about, constantly looking over your shoulder with what's happening. And then I end up getting sick with this super rare and aggressive cancer. So it was just a total terrible breeding fest of just mental health decline and you know, just it was just really hard. Um, you mentioned about racism or sexual, mm-hmm. um, you know, probably people saying innuendos to you and coming, you know, trying to, I know, like just be ridiculously, you know, rude and, 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 you know, I don't even know what the word for it is, but very inappropriate. Okay. Is there any examples? if you don't mind me asking what they were yeah. saying or what they were doing towards you? Yeah. So um, there was one example. I was pretty new. I just got to that fob maybe like a month or so. And I got tasked to a bunch of, uh, a unit with a bunch of guys. So I was the only female in the, in the unit or in my, my section, I guess you'll call it not my unit in my section. 
Um, and so one day I, I come back because you we all have to eat together. We're hanging out together. We're trying to get to know each other and stuff. And they had drew um, this lady on a napkin and she was like, you know, naked and it was very vulgar. And there's like different things on there. But I was just like, oh, God, like these are the people that I have to be with. These are the people I have to report to. This is not going to be good. So there was that. And then um, like at nighttime, you know, they would just be talking you know, sexual advances and, and um, uh, talking about what they would do and if they could do anything with me, you know, just being really aggressive with stuff. And I would always laugh it off, but I'm totally uncomfortable, but I don't want to make them upset or, um, you know, but I want to be firm and, and keep my stance, but I, it's just like, it was a super fine line to be, you know, trying to dance across. Like, should I be, should I completely be rude and, 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 and shut it off. Or should I kind of just like be also playful with it, you know, so I don't want to piss them off and make them mad. And so they retaliate and do something. So it was just constantly just not knowing how to teeter totter between the two, but it was always lots of verbal stuff mostly. Yeah. Cause I've never took, took, I never appreciated the, the paradox that you're in. At one hand, you know, they're, they're the people that are fighting shoulder to shoulder with you. And if something were to happen to mm -hmm. them or you, you would expect both of you, regardless of your background, your, gen your gender, your race, your beliefs, etc. You've got to have each other's back because that's why you're in war. But at the same time, right. you don't want to, you know, be walked all over and, and be deemed as someone weak or a pussy because you know, they're, they're, they're going to start bullying you. Uh, but if you push back right. too much, they might, you know, put you down a, uh, a peg, a peg, a notch or two and say, well, they're not really a friend of mine anymore. And, and therefore they're, they're not on an equal playing right. field uh, with yeah. to me. Right. They were complaining. They told on me, they're the reason why I got my rank taken away or whatever it is. And so it's like, how do you, you know, how do you dance that dance? So it was just constantly just trying to, be careful and play it off. But it bothered me so much. What was, your you know, but I also, like I told my NCO and he kind of shut it down. And then that's when I kind of realized, okay, like, um, so, we, you know, when I went to Iraq, we know that different women do end up becoming missing or they'll be shot or, you know, something happens to them. So I didn't want that scenario to happen to me either, you know, something really drastic. So I just was careful with what I was saying, how I was saying stuff and, not being too blatantly honest with things because I didn't want to end up dead. The um, the position or the uh, the profession you went into in, in the military, were you mm -hmm. just a regular soldier or was you in a special division of the military? Uh, so when you get deployed, your first, well, in, in any type of situation, your first job is always going to be defending the country. So it's always going to be guns and shooting. That's always going to be it. Then your second like rule or um, why you're there is whatever your MOS is. So when I was there, um, I didn't have any special duties. Like I wasn't like I had an option to go on convoys and to do like clearings and to go on different routes and stuff. But I just knew that wasn't that wasn't something I wanted to do at all. So I stayed on the FOB where we got bombed, we got mortared, we got, you know, really terrible things happening. A lot of action is what, you know, happened to us over there. But um, our main or my main job was um, like defending, you know, so we would sit outside the defect basically and with our guns and, and protect. But I didn't go on any real missions. I had the options to. All of my fellow soldiers did. I just chose not to do that. So, because I, I got uh, written down here, you was actually in the red zone on front line in Iraq. Is that correct? Yes. And um, this is correct. What was that like being in the red zone in, in Iraq? It's extremely scary. Um, I I know when I first got deployed, or when I first found out I was getting deployed, I was going somewhere called Fob Echoes. It was a Diwania, I think it's like 189 miles south of Baghdad. So it was all the way in the bottom, very dangerous area. <clears throat> I had done some research and I looked on YouTube. And I think a couple months prior, before looking at this video, there was a firefight. And I wanted to see, you know, what, where am I going? What type of action am I going to be seeing? What's going to be happening? And uh, there was just mortars and bombs and people screaming. And it was so chaotic. And I was like... Holy shit. Like, 
I can't believe this is happening to me. First of all, I signed up for the military, right? I did this to myself. You know, this is my own actions, this is my own doing. And now I have to go and do this. I just didn't think I was getting deployed so soon. I literally had just graduated from basic training, AIT, and I got to my main duty station and I was there for one month and nine days. And now I'm going to go fight for my country. So I just felt really ill-prepared. I didn't feel like it was right. Like I just learned how to throw a grenade, how to manhandle a 50 cal, how to shoot an M16. Like I just learned how to do all these really important things to defend a country and another person. So I just didn't feel like I was ready. So when I got there, it's dusty. It's, you know, it's really dry. It's really quiet, super airy, you know? And it's like flat, very flat. Everything's very flat. And I just remember thinking, wow, (laughs) this is my life. And I knew that I was not going to return back the same person. I was like, something crazy is going to happen here. And sure enough, we got bombed all the time. We got mortars all the time. I remember one time there was a bomb that ended up flying through our defect blew the defect up. Um, and I was so scared, you know, because you, you see these things on movies, but this is actual real life. All of my training went out the window, you know, and all I'm thinking is I have to run, I have to hide, I have to get somewhere safe. So I ended up getting inside of a bunker and I stayed in there and I remember I was just bawling, crying. I'm like, I can't believe I did this to myself, you know, and it's like, then there's other people who aren't as scared and, and they, you know, they're really, that's why they're there. They want to fight. But I, I just, I didn't feel like I was ready. You know, I didn't, I didn't feel like I was ready. And a lot of people probably wouldn't tell you the story. It's probably going to be more bravery, but this is like the honest truth. And probably a lot of other people as well that haven't spoken up about it, but it's a very surreal, very scary, very life-changing experience because you could at any moment you could, you know, get shrapnel on your neck or something crazy happen and you die. Um, the only thing I can compare it to in my life, and it's nowhere near the same, but it's a small sort of insight to it, is our box. You know, I've had uh, a lot of uh, boxing fights, uh, even one this year. And when I started at 14 years of age and you go into sparring for the first time and you get hit on the nose and your nose starts bleeding, you say the same thing to yourself. I done this to myself. I actually got into the ring. I went down that boxing gym. Mm. I said I wanted to become a boxer, but then the moment that you are treated like a boxer, you slightly start having <laughs> uh, the, yes. the the I don't know like thinking, D- do I really want to do this? And was there any kind of regret in that moment when you're in that bunker that oh my god, I regret actually signing up for this? Yes, it was immediate regret. Immediate regret. I just kept thinking. I should have stayed back in school. I shouldn't have dropped out of college. I should have just stayed. Like, I think I did this prematurely. I shouldn't have, like, I wasn't ready. I I just felt like I should have had more training. Had I had more training and more, you know, I don't know, different live scenarios and events to do this. Because everything was just, it was like drinking out of a fire um, hose, you know, it was just so quick, so fast, learning all this information. I just didn't feel ready at all. Like I was not prepared. Like, did I remember everything? Do I remember how to, um, you know, clear a room, how to, how to unpuncture a, um, uh, if there's like a punctured lung, how to, how to fix that with a catheter. Like there's just so much stuff that I just didn't feel like I was ready for. So I, yeah, there was immediate regret, but as I look back on it now, I don't regret it, you know, but being in that situation and being just scared, you know, it was hard. It was, it was nerve wracking. It was scary. It was very surreal. Um, you know, I had different emotions, but now looking back, you know, I appreciate the experiences and being able to say that I served my country, that I went to war for my country. I, you know, a lot of people, they don't do that. A lot of people don't come back. Massive credit. So yeah. Massive credit to you for even go, going in there and, and, and coming back alive. Um, so you mentioned about being in a in a kind of like a crater uh, where you were sobbing your eyes out. Um, if I can ask you this one more bit on this sort of segment, um, you mentioned bombs, bullets, guns firing, etc. Did you ever see people like literally die from these things or get, I know, their limbs blown off or anything, which is kind of really scary to witness as a soldier? 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I, when we got hit, it was in November, I believe, uh, some shrapnel hit this girl's neck, but I don't know if she passed away or not. Um, I didn't see any like limbs being blown. I was really careful with what I was exposing myself to. Um, so like I could have, you know, gone outside the wire. I could have gone on these different convoys. Those people that did that, they saw stuff. I did not see those types of things. And I had the option, hey, Brandy, do you want to go, or PFC Benson, do you want to go, you know, go do whatever this mission is? And I was like, I I don't think I, I don't think I can. <laughs> like, I don't know if that would be a good idea. So I didn't see anything to that extent because I was really trying to protect my, protect myself um, in that way. Yeah, uh, understood. So, um you're award-winning cancer advocate because you had this, uh, if I'm summing this up right, a very rare cancer that I believe started in a lump in your leg and I've seen yes. physical scars. And mm-hmm. when we had this conversation, it probably makes sense that it's come from, can I call it some kind of radiation from, from the bombs and stuff in, in Iraq, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. you've got no complete evidence of that but all the evidence in your own mind or the experiences you've gone through is pointing towards that direction so can you tell me a bit more about that yeah so when i was deployed of course this is where it all starts from it was 2008 i was deployed um so around from october to december it's you know getting bombed all the time things are happening but it's not until december time frame that I started experiencing extreme fatigue. Like I am so exhausted. I felt like I drank like a bottle of tiny of, of NyQuil. Like I'm so tired. No matter what I do, I can't wake up. I'm so, so tired. So that was one of the first symptoms, but I thought I was so exhausted from all the stuff that was happening. I'm in war, I'm 24 years old, it's Christmas time, not around my family. So I'm thinking all these exterior things is why I'm so exhausted. But that was one of the symptoms is being fatigued. So then January comes around and I had been working out like crazy. I'd been working out like I'm training for like probably Olympics. Like I'm working out three times a day. I am really going hard at it. And I'm doing this because I need to get days off so I can catch up on some rest. Mm. And I think that's why I'm so tired. So I go to the doctors and I, you know, just explain to them, I found this lump on my leg. I'm not quite sure what it is. And everybody thinks that something's wrong, except for me. I didn't know you could get cancer anywhere in your body. I thought breast cancer, lung cancer, stomach cancer, throat cancer, you know, all the cancers you hear about. I didn't know you could get cancer in your leg. So I had the cancer in my groin area by your adductor muscle. I didn't know what it was. It was a lump. I had no clue it was cancer. Um, So the doctors probably know that it's something, you know, but they can't tell me it's cancer because I haven't had any tests or anything ran on me. So they immediately tell me that, I have to go and get these these tests done in Baghdad. So I go to Baghdad, get the test done, and the doctor comes back and he tells me, you know, we're really, you know, we're for sure, we're certain that there's blood flowing in and out of it. It doesn't look like it's anything too serious. You have the option to go back to your FOB or you can go to Germany. And I'm thinking, huh, well, if I go to Germany, that means more rest, more sleep, and I'll be further away from war. So I was like, I'm gonna go to Germany. So I go to Germany and get a CT scan. No, I get an MRI and um, the doctor, you know, going through all the process and, and taking biopsies and stuff. And he, I remember him telling me that he hopes and he prays that it's not Ewing sarcoma and he wants it to be a nerve sheath tumor. And I'm like, what is a tumor? I don't even know what the hell a tumor is. Like what's a tumor and what are these other things that you just said I had? So I go online and I look it up and they're both cancers. And I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> Like, what? Like, how could this even be? Like, I'm in the best shape of my life. I'm 24 years old. I like, I just dropped out of college. I just swapped out my my college books for M16. Like, how how am I now, like, dying, you know? So it just didn't make any sense to me. I'm like, these people have got to be wrong. Like, there's no way that I have cancer. Cancer doesn't run in my family. Like, how could that be? But I ended up having um, a Ewing sarcoma is what it was. <clears throat> the cancer the doctor said he didn't want me to have because it's so rare, it's so aggressive, 
it spreads to your lungs, your spine, and your uh, your brainstem. And it's really hard to get rid of. So when they finally diagnose me and tell me the type of cancer I have, they give me a year to live. They say it's terminal. And they tell me that if I live past a year, that I will not live past five years uh, and basically get all my affairs in order, you know. Um, so I was married at the time to a really terrible guy. And um, because he thought I was going to die, he started having an affair and kind of prepping his life and getting ready to move on. And I ended up finding out about that. It was horrible. So like, imagine, you know, you're like dying on your deathbed. And then the guy that you're supposed to be with, that you're supposed to find peace in and be there for you is like, peace out, I'm out because you're on your way out. Like, it was so hard, so hard. But luckily, I also had my mother there with me. Uh, she was my non-medical attendant. Uh, and she, you know, she she took care of me, she took me all my appointments. Um, she made sure my mental health was in the right direction. Um, she really was my pillar and my huge support system and probably the really i think the reason why i am here today that's that's a mental story man um it's it was horrible <laughs> it's a it's a mental story okay so you've got this yeah. rare form of cancer and to be honest mm -hmm. there, there's a there's a there's a lady who was a playboy model called jordan was her name jordan and she uh, her what's her real name uh, I, f I forgot her name. She was the only person that I ever saw in the media say she's got cancer, but in her finger. And she has to get it cut out. And I was like, what? In her finger? I said, that's not a thing. Like, is it, is, is it really a thing? Um, and, it, and it clearly was. And she survived. And, she, she, and so to hear you got it in your leg, I mean, it's probably the first ever time I'll, I've, I've ever come across that. So did you actually see the lump yourself or was it hidden? Um, so you could only see it at first if, so the only way, the only way I, I like discovered it, I was laying down on my back and I was stretching cause I had done like legs the neck the day before or a couple days ago and I was stretching and there was like a lump protruding out of my leg. But if I stood up and I walked around, you couldn't see it. I couldn't feel it. I couldn't, I didn't even notice anything. It wasn't until I laid down and I was stretching. So had I not been stretching or been very active, I would have never known about it and it started out probably the size of like a, a large orange like but it was deeply embedded inside of my muscle so i had no clue but by the time we'll say a month into all of this it was the size of a baby watermelon or a cantaloupe it was massive so huge it was putting pressure on my main artery my leg was going numb i couldn't feel my toes i couldn't extend my leg all the way out it was uh, like you know was that a like a an angle because I couldn't extend my foot down all the way. It was horrible. It was throbbing. It was really painful. And it was just growing rapidly. And it took a month, a month that is to do that. And they thought they were going to have to amputate my leg at my hip. So there was just a lot of things going on. And they just weren't sure because they had never seen a case of Ewing sarcoma before. Till this day, till this day, they have not seen a case of Ewing sarcoma. I actually ended up reaching out to my surgeon in 2019 because I had wrote, wrote the book and stuff. Um, and I just wanted to thank him like for saving my life, for saving my leg. Like because of you, I've been able to do all of these things, X, Y, and Z. You know, have, hope, I don't, I'm not quite sure if you remember me. He's like, of course I remember you. You're the only case I've had till this day. So they, you probably in the medical field, a doctor may or may not come across this maybe once or twice in their whole entire practice. Like it's so rare. You, you don't see it. That's so crazy. So they don't even know how to, to treat it. Really. They, they basically was, it's like a science project. They're like, well, according to statistics, you know, you're going to be dying according to statistics. This is where it's going to be spreading to. And we really don't know what else to tell you, you know? So. Yeah. Mental stuff. So, be yeah. Before we go on to how you overcame it, okay, which is a really interesting segment of the conversation, I remember you saying yeah. to me that some of you, your other colleagues actually end up getting similar or the same sort of cancer. They died, mm -hmm. and you believe, and I think if I remember right, you called them fire pits. You were going through fire pits mm -hmm. in Iraq. So if you could mm -hmm. uh, emphasize a bit more on the, these two points. Mm -hmm. 
So when you are deployed uh, in the Middle East, or I'm not quite sure how they do it now, but they burn all of the trash. So there's animals, dead animals, there's gas, there's bullets, there's syringes, there's actual trash, there's aluminum, all that stuff. Like, where are you going to put all of this trash from all of these people eating, doing things, Humvees are burning, all that. What are you going to do with everything? So they burn everything. But the problem is, is there's toxins, there's, you know, chemicals that are now floating all around in the air. And these individuals who are either operating on the burn pits, actually, you know, conducting these burn pits, are getting sick and they're inhaling this. And then it's the other people who are around the vicinity that are also getting sick. So in August this year in 2000, uh, so this year, I think it was on the 10th of August, um, the Biden passed this act called the PACT Act. And what it, what it does or what it is, is it's acknowledging those individuals who have been deployed in the Middle East and have now gotten sick due to the burn pits and have, you know, a plethora of different cancers. And so there is science, there's data, there's clinical, there's clinical information showing that there's a connection with toxic exposures that the soldiers were subjected to due to being deployed in Iraq from the burn pit. So it is an actual thing that people were getting sick. It caused cancer in their lives. So you're pretty confident that the cancer that you had in your leg, the tumor was down to that. Mm Mm-hmm. I 100% know so. So the type of cancer I had, it's not like it was hereditary, right? Um, it also, it happens to, so I am, I was 24, I'm a woman and African-American. It ha- So that type of cancer happens to Caucasian boys who are be- between the ages six and like 15. Not quite sure how I got it, <laughs> but I don't fit the dynamics of any of that. So it just didn't make any sense, you know, whatsoever. So I know. And then, of of course, also doing my own research and learning about different cancers that I believe it was something like 85 or 90 percent of cancers, their lifestyle and exposures. It's not even hereditary. So a lot of cancers could be prevented if we take care of our bodies, we're eating the right things, if we're not under stressful circumstances. So really just being deployed there was the perfect scenario for something like this. You're your immune system is suppressed because you're so stressed out. We had an alarm system on our on our fob that didn't work. And this alarm system was supposed to let us know when the bullets or the missiles were coming in. It's called incoming, right? So there'd be this alarm that goes off. I don't know if it was like 10 or, 10 or five seconds. I can't, I can't remember. But as it goes through the sphere, it's supposed to alarm us and let us know that system was broken. So you're stressed out. You have no first line of defense that's letting you know what's going on. The missiles come and they're blowing up things and it comes out of nowhere. So you're just stressed out. You're on, you know, your emotions are heightened 24 seven. You're in a fight or flight mode constantly. Your immune system is being broken down. The toxins, the exposures, the dirty water, you know, it's just the perfect place for something like that to happen. And unfortunately, a lot of us got, ended up getting sick. The um, the others that you mentioned to me before who actually got mm-hmm. these type of cancers and sadly have now passed away, did you any, know any of them personally? And do you have any of the um, stories they were telling you as they were going through their treatment or their struggles? So when I first got to the hospital, it was Walter Reed Medical Center in the States. It was located in D.C. at the time because now I think it's in Virginia or Maryland. I don't know. It's somewhere else, different location for the hospital. <laughs> but um, I didn't know them personally until after we started making connections like, oh, you're from this area or you're at this unit. But all of us were from deployment, every single one of us. So I made friends with all of them. Um you know, I was like the new patient on the ward. I, you know, they had kind of like senior individuals. They've been there the longest. <clears throat> so they kind of knew what was happening and why they felt like they were there. And we all were just like, okay, this is really strange. Like I'm from deployment. I was also exposed to these areas. I remember one of the girls, her name was Sweet. Um, and I had, I was like a fresh, fresh patient, just had just gotten there. And uh, she was kind of, you know, trying to console me, tell me that everything's going to be all right and it's going to be okay. And that next morning, we were 
there was a janitor that came in and she was like crying. My mother and I were just thinking like, what's wrong with her? You know, what's going on? And she turns around and she, as she's sweeping up the stuff on the ground, <clears throat> she's like, you didn't hear all the commotion last night? And we're like, no, what happened? And she's like, well, sweet passed away. And we're like, like, well, how does she die? And they're like, she had cancer. Like, duh. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> That's what happens. And so I immediately, I'm thinking, oh my God, like I have cancer. Everybody on this ward has cancer. So this means that we're all going to end up passing away. It was just really hard just thinking about your own death, you know, and you're waiting for it to happen. You know, like it's happening anytime. It's not like a car accident, like it, you know, comes kind of comes out of nowhere. It's like, you're waiting, you're planning your affairs, you're getting everything in order and just just waiting for death to come and take you away. It's it's really scary, very scary, especially when, very surreal, especially when you see one by one, you know, the other people, you know, you know, everyone's just dropping like flies and the emotion that they are going through and the emotion that you're going through, it must be really hard to keep a, a strong mind and a level head. Yeah, so there was came to one point, and I'm sure that the hospital didn't mean to do this. And I always talk about this part of the story is we all had different rooms, right? The smallest room meant you were like, you know, you just got there, you're probably like the newest patient. But as your seniority grew, you got a bigger room. The largest room was <clears throat> that person had been there longest, but that person in that room never walked out alive. That person died. It was room 7131. And I remember we finally got to that room. It was me and my mother. And, you know, we're just both thinking, not saying anything like this is this is the last room. Like I'm either going to walk out of here alive or, you know, I'm going to be zipped up in a body bag. But it was just mentally draining, you know, not only watching your friends, but also getting bumped up to room to room to room and then finally getting in the largest room and just waiting, not knowing if it's going to be okay if you're going to walk out or am I going to be checked out to hospice? It was just a lot of mental agony and um, your own thoughts. But I felt like I had, because of my mom, because I had a super strong support system. She was always there to kind of shake me back to where I needed to be and to, to kind of fix my thought process and what we wanted to be happening because the doctors thought I was going to die you know, they were coming in and out all the time. <clears throat> it was just really, really hard. So she ended up actually creating a sign <clears throat> and it said, do not enter unless you're feeding, feeding her, taking her vitals or giving her medication. So there was no more like the banter or the, the outside forces of you're going to be dying. This is, you know, preparing your will, like how's everything feeling? So she just limited it to you can only come in here for these reasons. And with that, everything changed. My, I started responding to the treatment better. Um, my attitude changed, like my outlook on things changed. Everything changed because we were able to kind of control the narrative a bit more versus just kind of just floating around wondering when and where it was going to be happening at for death. So um, I don't know where I saw it. I listen to a lot of personal development and always have done because I'm in sales, right? And then from sales, <laughs> I've now got this 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 art uh, private gallery in London and at the core of any business is sales right if you don't have a good team if you don't have a good sales process you can have the best product and brand in the world but if you can't convey that then you know your business is going to go from something to nothing pretty quickly so I think you know personal development is really important to get your mind in check I trade all the time as a boxer but if you don't do the mind stuff then that becomes weak over time so anyway I, what, I listened to a uh, conversation once and um, a guy, I can't remember if it's Tony Robbins or Jim Rohn or someone like that, but they said a young girl, I think it was, got cancer. Like she was young, you know, let's call her seven, eight, below 10. And her mum and dad said to her, right, you got to play this video game. And it was basically a warship shooting down the baddies, yeah? And it was like, one of, like the old school kind of, you know, it just goes across the screen like this type of thing, yeah? Nothing fancy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, every time you shoot down the enemy, you're killing off your tumour. And lo and behold, she completed it and she didn't have a tumour anymore. Now, it's like the, 
whatever the mind perceives, it becomes a reality. It was like her body was mm-hmm. shifted inside because of her thought processes. Mm-hmm. And I know that's really yes. hard for a lot of people to kind of fathom and really to get their head round. But I totally believe in that stuff. I do believe if you put all your energy into it, you can mm-hmm. change physically things what are happening into your body. So can you share a bit more about that with your own experience? Yes, absolutely. I 100% believe this. And I am like an avid believer. I like this is how I live my life now. It completely changed everything. <clears throat> so I, again, went from having this terminal cancer doctors preparing me for death um, and then having my mother there and um, her basically telling me that she understands that the doctors don't believe that I'm going to make it right. She understands what the doctors are telling me that according to statistics, like I'm not going to be here. And she runs down a whole list of stuff, but then she, you know, she sits me down and she says, but I believe in you. I know you can do it. I know you have more fighting in you. And she's like, there's miracles every single day. Why can't you be one? I was like, if she believes in me and she thinks that I could do it. And she's my mom. Like my mom knows me. They don't know me. They think, you know, I'm a number. I was like, she believes in me. Like I need to start thinking that this is something that's possible. And then that's immediately what we started doing. So we started having like crazy little laughing sessions. We would just laugh about this, the weirdest things. And I remember one time it was late at night and it was like four in the morning and we're like cracking up over this journalist who's doing these like weird poses and we're laughing and I'm like in the hospital bed. I have a bandana on my head. I have like tubes running out of my arms and we're like mimicking him and laughing. The nurse comes in and they're like, you guys have to be quiet. Like there's other patients in here, like, you know, chill out. But we were just like super lighthearted with different things. So we're laughing all the time. We're like, daydreaming about what's going to happen and how how I'm going to be a miracle one day and how my story I'm going to share it with so many people around the world and I'm going to help so many people I'm going to write a book I'm going to do all these great things and I start kind of believing in all of this stuff like it starts becoming like I don't want to say memory because it hadn't happened but then I just start remembering like okay like this is what I'm going to be doing this is what's going to be happening and I just changed my whole thought process of everything from going from death to like, okay, this is an experience that I'm going through right now. It's only temporary. Pain is only temporary. The fear that I have right now is only an obstacle. Like these, these things are, are they're going to go away and I'm going to be able to take this information and this experience. And I'm going to help somebody one day. And so we just dove deep into the future and what we thought was going to be happening, how great life was going to be after and where I was going to be going and the different vacations we were going to be having. But we really just played with the idea of being our best and our healthiest and our elite version of myself or, the, or, or us and how wonderful life was going to be. And I'm telling you, as soon as I started doing that, my, the tumor started shrinking because at first it wasn't going anywhere. Nothing was happening with the tumor. It was it was still like rock hard, solid, big, and they'd measure it every Monday but as soon as we started changing our, our mind frames and what we wanted to happen, the tumor started shrinking. Um, I started responding better to the treatment. I wasn't feeling as nauseous. Like I just really tried to take charge of what was happening. Cause really at the end of the day, it's all about how you respond to whatever's going on in your life. You know, if you respond poorly to things, then that's the, that's the, the output that you're going to be receiving. If you have a little bit more control and you're able to make it less pessimistic and more optimistic, your output is going to be a bit better. It's all about law of attraction. And then that's when I started learning about law of attraction. My mom got me the book. I started reading about it. I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to incorporate this. Like I've been living my whole entire life this other way. Like why not try this way instead? Like there's, I can't lose anything. I can gain the world. So I started playing with this idea and lo and behold, everything that we talked about, I wrote a book, I opened up a business, I speak on different platforms, like talked to Rolls Royce a couple months ago. I've done all these amazing, cool things. I've I've provided hope for the, the cancer community. I've done really amazing, great things, but it's all because of being able to 
understand the law of attraction and that um, we don't have to be a, a victim of the circumstances. You know, you can be the MVP of your entire life. I, I totally resonate with, um, you know, rather than react, you need to respond to stuff. And the old quote, which you've probably seen a bunch of times on social media, which is things are not happening to you, they're happening for you. And you've got to find a way yes. to, to flip it around. Um, yes. But, but at the same time, Brett Brandil, this is not my view. This is probably more of a devil's advocate point of view. There are going to be some people listening to this or, or probably heard your story and say, yeah, that's all a bit, a bit of luck. You know, the, the facts are she had this melon-sized tumour and by a, a sheer bit of luck, she's walked out of there. But really and truly, all of that, positive thinking stuff that's not really going to work for most people who are in a scenario what would you say to that i would tell them that i understand that that they believe that it could have been sheer luck and sure it could have been sheer luck i mean whatever it is it i was able to create it and manifest it and bring it into you know my existence my physical self but i would also tell them to just try um, to just explore a little bit more about law of attraction, because honestly, we're all going through law of attraction. We're all experiencing what we are constantly thinking about, right? So if you're a pessimistic person, you're gonna be constantly uh, attracting those circumstances, those, um, those people, those situations, and you're going to be living that. But just to tell them to kind of journal what their thought processes are, you know, what they're going through throughout the week, and then read that and just see what type of information is coming from that. And I will tell you what your mind frame is, right? And then try to, from that, if it's something that's negative that you're constantly thinking about, try to switch it with more positive things and see what type of outcome um, they will see in the next following weeks or whatever that is, however long they want to do it. But I just know that it's so powerful. I've been able to attract some really amazing opportunities. Like I just did a video shoot with Sterling K. Brown and I have him on my vision board and I put him up there two years ago. I had no idea how I was gonna meet this guy, but I was like, I wanna meet him. Seems like he's really cool. And then the world, the universe just kind of lines up perfectly. And I ended up doing this really amazing thing with Bristol Myers Squibb and talking to him and doing video shoots with him and stuff. And it's like, how? The hell did that happen? I don't know, but I know like I know what I want to happen and then it just starts happening like for me, right? It's incredible. Like, and it's all about, your, it's it's all energy, right? It's all energy. It's all about frequencies. It's all just being able to control your thoughts. And that's what it really is. And that's what I learned with cancer is just being able to control what it is that I'm thinking. If I'm thinking something bad, then I like immediately I change it and I make it something that's more pleasant for me that I feel like, okay, this is what I want, the mind frame or the, the frequency I want to be on. But that's what I've learned. The entire thing through cancer was do not give up on yourself and anything is possible. And whatever you're constantly thinking about is what you're going to be attracting and living. Definitely. You know, your physical life. Uh, yeah. Um, just to round off this segment then when you were in <laughs> hospital. So you had... 90 rounds of chemotherapy. Oh, yes. Yeah. You had a mm -hmm. melon-sized tumor on your leg, which was very, very painful. You mentioned you had mm -hmm. tubes coming out your arm. So even that in itself is scary, painful, uncomfortable, etc. And now you move to this basically death room, which, you know, inadvertently or, or is, you know, it's been labeled that because everyone who's gone in there hasn't come out alive. Um I know you shifted the mindset and I totally resonate with it, but how did you go from shifting it, maintaining it, and then when did you kind of walk out of there someone that was fit and well and, and free to crack on with your life? I was able to maintain it because the other thought process didn't make me feel good. So I stayed with what made me feel good. And if I wanted to live, then I don't need to be thinking about death 24 seven and constantly thinking about what's going to be happening at my funeral and what's that going to be looking like. So it was easy for me to maintain it because that's what I wanted. I wanted life. I wanted to experience things beyond my cancer and what I was going through. So that was easy to maintain. Um, and then it's about just being aware about what, what I'm thinking and how long I'm thinking it for and why am I thinking these things? And, 
kind of just like nitpicking and kind of dissecting and putting things together and figuring out, well, where is this coming from? Why is this happening? Um, so it was easy because that's what I wanted. I wanted to live. I didn't want to die. So I want to think about things that make me feel happy and pleasant and, and good. So staying on that was really simple. And then also my mother was there, you know, also making sure that if I did say anything that was kind of off the wall a little bit, she'd bring me back and be like, you know, that's not going to happen, Brady, you know? So her being there was also really a great thing. Um, and then when we finally left the hospital, so I didn't walk out the hospital because I was too weak. Um, I had done, like you said, it was over 101 rounds of chemotherapy. I had endless hours of surgery. I had seven leg surgeries, um, tons of tons of different physical therapy. And I was so weak by the end of all of my treatment. So it's now from time for me to leave 7131 that I couldn't even sign myself out. I couldn't even hold a pen. My my signatures, my it wasn't even legible. So she had to sign me out. And what happened is we got wheelchaired out. So she pushed me out on the wheelchair, but together we ended up leaving. And as we're we're going through it, I remember they were throwing like a little party and you know everyone was all excited and happy that I made it out. You know, from having UN sarcoma cancer, but everything was happening so fast that I really didn't get to like really live in the moment. You know, mm. it was just such a quick experience. Ten months ago, I was okay. The next next month was just like flashbacks of trying to stay here and trying to stay sane and and keep my my mind positive. So. There was, I don't remember too much about leaving the hospital. I just remember being wheelchaired out of the hospital and I was on a lot of medication, like a lot of medication. So I was also kind of not all there as well. And the medications, they also, there's lots of side effects. So some of them make you hallucinate. I would see dead people. I would see people that end up passing away. I would see them at the foot of my bed or I'd be stuttering really bad or my memory was horrible. You know, it was just, you're literally poisoning yourself to the brink of death. And then they stop the treatment, replenish you with a bunch of fluids that give you a couple of days to kind of get back to normal. And then they do it to you again. So it was just like a constant, you know, constant uh, treatment of just feeling horrible, horrible, horrible. So coming out of there, I don't remember too, too much because I was on a lot of medication, but, um, Nonetheless, you know, happy and grateful that we that we made it out, and you know, I, I was able to be the miracle story. I, I I wanted to ask you as well because I've ne never gone through cancer, and God forbid, I never have to. Mm -hmm. But chemotherapy, you know, the first time you've done it as a young, fit, former military personnel to let's say the hundredth time, what like? Tell me what that's like when you first done it for the first time. It was horrible. And I think that's another scary thing is because the doctors will let you know, okay, so with this treatment, we hope that it's going to respond. Sometimes it may not respond. So that's what they kept telling me. They were telling me that we're not sure if the cancer and the treatment are going to be responding well. We're not quite sure what's going to happen. So that was like another heightened of fear. Like, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know what's going to be happening. I'm probably going to die. They're going to have to cut my leg off. So I didn't know what was going to be happening. So that is a really big fear is wondering how you're going to respond to it. If it is going to respond to the cancer, what are the side effects that's going to be happening? But once I was kind of getting the hang of what each treatment is and what to expect, like the fear or the anxiety of getting that next treatment, it wasn't as scary so i was like now anticipating okay like so this one makes me you know this one makes me hallucinate or this one makes me have a really bad stutter or this one makes me you know your bladder bleed or whatever it is like it does whatever it is so i was able to understand and anticipate it and know okay well i did okay last time i'm probably going to be all right this time so i started it was not as scary as it was when i first initially started because you just don't know what's going to be happening you have no idea but as time goes on you get weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker. And um, and a lot of times when people do pass away from cancer, it's not cancer itself. It's their immune system is so suppressed that a common cold or a scratch or whatever it is, um, is the reason why they end up passing away. So 
your immune system is super, it's gone. There's, there's nothing that's protecting you from the outer world and, and getting sick. You are a miracle woman. So what did the doctors who were treating you directly, when you, when you actually got wheeled out of there and then they spoke to you a month or two later and then you're probably back on your feet, like how mm-hmm. were they, what was the language? What were they saying to you? Yeah, they, they just said, you know, we knew you had it in you, right? Is that, that's not what you guys were saying. <laughs> but yeah, we knew you had it in you. You have such a spunky attitude, your resiliency. And they kept saying it was my mom. I had the support of my mother there. They kept saying they, they've never seen a parent so dedicated for their, you know, for their child. So she ended up quitting everything. She left her job. She left her friends, family, everything to come take care of me uh, in the hospital. And my sister was also deployed and she had a little boy. Uh, so they both came to the hospital to come stay with me and they lived there. They didn't know if they would have, uh, you know, a stipend, food, a place to live. And so for the first couple of weeks, they stayed on the couch, but they were there the entire time. And then the military provided her a stipend and a hotel and Donovan had a daycare and stuff, but she was there the entire time, you know? And I don't think it has to be just your mother. I think it's could be, you know, a father if I had a dad. Like, somebody was there with me the entire time. Granted, probably should have been the guy I was married to, but he was out, you know, sleeping around and, and doing whatever he was doing, so. Yeah, so, 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 so now you obviously got a book, you do a lot of public speaking. So tell me, tell me yes. what you're up to right now and what your plans are for the future, Brandil. Yeah, so um, my goal really is just to provide hope for those individuals. And it doesn't have to be cancer, it could be any kind of traumatic event. And so what I've realized, what I've been able to do well at is take all of my disadvantages and make them work to my advantage. So there's tons of things that I thought I probably couldn't have done because of the cancer or this huge scar on my leg or my disfigured leg or whatever it is. But because of that, like so many amazing things have been able to be birthed from that. Like I'm a new person. I've experienced all these amazing things. Now I'm able to talk from a place of empathy and sympathy. Like I just, I'm more relatable for certain things. It's just, if you look at your situations and you see what you thought didn't work and maybe how can you now make it work to your advantage. Um, so I've been really unfortunate to, you know, really fortunate to, to have that ability to do that. And that's what I've done now is a lot of coaching, a lot of counseling, a lot of um, being people's support system. Cause I know how important that is. I just, I know that's why I'm here today. So people reach out to me on Instagram or on Facebook and I make sure they have a support system and make sure I'm helping and allocating them right to the right individuals or maybe the right groups or support groups, but just really being there. So right now it's just all about giving back, providing hope, um, and letting people know that cancer is not always a death sentence. And the hardest thing is survivorship, right? So after you go through treatment, you go through cancer, you had spent a certain amount of time being told what to do, when to do it, kind of like the military. And now you're out. You're in survivorship now. And it's like, okay, well, now what do you do? You, d- you don't have your doctor's appointments anymore. You know, what? where do you go and how do you stay healthy? So now I'm also trying to coach those individuals is um, being aware of the stress that they're enduring, the chemicals that they're around. Um, because if cancer is 80 to 90% lifestyle and, um, you know, um, exposures, that means we need to be mitigating and fixing and being aware of what we are doing to ourselves. If you want to stay in survivorship and you want to be in remission for X amount of time, like there's certain things that we need to be doing to stay there. So it's just coaching those individuals and, and trying to, not that I have the miracle recipe. I, I, I don't, I can just tell them what I've learned and what's worked for me. And so that's what I've been doing now. Um, and just sharing my story of hope and resiliency. And again, the importance of allyship. Yeah. Listen, it's been a great, great episode. I've, I've got so much value from yeah. this and I found it very interesting. I hope to stay connected with you. Um, are you ever over yeah. in um, in London? So, so I've been there one time. I went there in March. I went to, I can't remember what it's called, but it was nice. Okay. Stockbridge, Stockholm, uh, something with an S. In London. 
Yeah. Yeah, it was in London. Okay. I can't remember. Um, I've, I've actually gone brain dead myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't remember, but it was nice. Okay. It was like the hippie, it was the hip area or something like that. Like a bunch of people started with an S. I can't remember. Yeah, it's but... uh, East London. Is that where they had the uh, Olympics? Stratford. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's that's it. it. There you Stratford, go. Stratford. Stratford. Yep. Yeah, cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it is a cool area. It was nice. Yeah. It was nice. Um, well, look, if you're ever around, uh, come over and see us over in Mayfair, Soho area. Um, been a fantastic uh, conversation. I'm going to ask you one more question. When I um, right. set up my first brand, I come up with a mantra, which I feel you're going to really resonate with. Okay. And it goes like this. <laughs> Be happy, never content. Now, I've got <clears> my own interpretation of it and I try and live by it every single day. I've got my affirmations, got my vision board and I'm constantly onto it. And even in my gym, yeah. I built a gym indoors. It says, be happy, never content. And I use it all the time to motivate, motivate myself. If I were to ask you, Brandil Benson, what does be happy, never content mean to you? Uh, be happy. Uh, be happy would be, be happy, never content. Keep learning. Keep learning and uh, don't steer away from fear. Conquer it. Amazing. All right, wicked. Thank you so much. I hope everyone's enjoyed yeah. this episode. Please subscribe uh, and obviously share this episode with friends and family and also give Brandil a follow. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.